Welcome to a reading of the Adult Sabbath School Bible Study Guide for October, November and December 2012. Titled, Growing in Christ, it's brought to you by the Sabbath School Department, Christian Services for the Blind and Hearing Impaired, and through the services of Adventist Media Network. Lesson 12, December 15-21, to 21, Last Things, Jesus and the Saved. Sabbath, December 15. Before we start, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we open your word again, and we're going to be looking this week at Jesus and his relationship to us, the saved. We pray that as we open your word, that we may see the glory that comes from you and and the love and the grace. May your word speak to each one of us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our memory text this week is Acts chapter 3, verses 19 to 21. Repent, therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send Jesus Christ, who was preached to you before, whom heaven must receive until the times of restoration of all things, which God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. Let's read that again, Acts chapter 3, verses 19 to 21. Repent, therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send Jesus Christ, who was preached to you before, whom heaven must receive until the times of restoration of all things, which God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. And our key thought for this week is, the Bible's teaching on Christ's ministry in the heavenly sanctuary his second coming, and the resurrection of the dead, stand together as a message of hope for those who have placed their trust in him. The history of the great controversy between good and evil has had many pivotal moments. The climax, though, was at the cross, where Satan's ultimate defeat and destruction were ensured. At the same time, Biblical prophecy points to a time of the end in Daniel 12, a period in salvation history with its own significance in terms of the relationship between the Lord and his people. Events within this time of the end period are described as eschatological, meaning last things. In this week's lesson, we will look at three special events within this general period of the last things that have immense spiritual implications. Christ's ministry in the heavenly sanctuary, the second coming of Christ, and the resurrection of those who died in true faith. Sunday, December 16, The Heavenly Sanctuary, Part 1 Fundamental Belief Number 24 opens with the following words. There is a sanctuary in heaven, the true tabernacle which the Lord set up and not man. See Hebrews 8.2 One of the matter-of-fact assumptions of the Bible is the existence of a heavenly sanctuary. We can see that first in Psalm 11, End verse 4. The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold. His eyelids test the sons of men. Question. 
Read Hebrews chapter 8, verses 1 to 5. What is the main point taught in these verses? Now, this is the main point of the things we are saying. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle which the Lord erected and not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. Therefore, it is necessary that this one also have something to offer. For if he were on earth, he would not be a priest, since there are priests who offer the gifts according to the law, who serve the copy and shadow of the heavenly things, as Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle. For he said, See that you make all things according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. The earthly sanctuary is portrayed as a type or pattern of the heavenly one. This means that at a minimum, the former has some functional correspondence with the latter. The earthly sanctuary, then, teaches us a lot about the heavenly. Despite that, whatever the earthly sanctuary meant to the people of Israel, its true significance was found in the heavenly and what was to happen there. Through the efficacy of the sacrifices and priestly ministry, the earthly model taught us about the realities of the heavenly sanctuary. The ministrations of the earthly sanctuary were God's means of teaching the principles of salvation to his people, a foreshadowing of the real thing, which is Christ's ministry, both through his death and then his intercession in the heavenly sanctuary. Ministry in the earthly sanctuary taught that while the shedding of blood was necessary in Hebrews 9.22 to atone for sin, there was still the need for a priestly mediator between sinners and a holy God as a result of that shed blood. The ministry of the priest in the most holy place cleansed the sanctuary of sin and required affliction and repentance on the part of the people. Thus, judgment also was highlighted as an integral part of the total ministry of salvation. What is fascinating too is what Hebrews 8, 1 and 2 say, which is that the goal of all the previous seven chapters in the book is to point the reader to the reality of the heavenly sanctuary and the position of Christ as our high priest in that heavenly sanctuary. It's hard to understand how anyone could not see the great significance that Hebrews gives to Christ's ministry in the heavenly sanctuary as part of the entire plan of salvation. Nothing in the verses indicates that the sanctuary in heaven, much less Christ's ministry there, should be seen as metaphorical or symbolic. In fact, verse 5 makes it clear that the earthly sanctuary, a real structure with real priests and real sacrifices, was only a shadow of the reality of what Christ is doing for us in the heavenly sanctuary. Monday, December 17, The Heavenly Sanctuary, Part 2 The earthly sanctuary service revealed three phases of salvation, substitutionary sacrifice, priestly mediation, and judgment. The Bible teaches that all three phases of salvation are embodied in the ministry of Christ on behalf of sinners. Question 
Read Isaiah 53, 6, Romans 3, 24 and 25, and 2 Corinthians 5, 21. How does Christ's death on the cross satisfy the substitutionary aspect of salvation? First of all, Isaiah 53, verse 6. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And then Romans chapter 3, verses 24 and 25, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness, because in his forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed. And Second Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21, For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Question. What do these texts say about both Christ and mediation on behalf of the sinners? 1 Timothy 2.5 and Hebrews 7.25. 1 Timothy 2 verse 5. There is, for there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. And Hebrews Chapter 7, verse 25. Therefore, he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Just as animal sacrifices pointed to the death of Christ, the priestly ministry foreshadowed the true ministry of Christ in the heavenly sanctuary. In particular, the continual or daily ministry of priests in the holy place symbolized the access that the sinner has to God through Christ's ministry as intercessor and mediator in the heavenly sanctuary. Question. Study Hebrews 9.23. How does the cleansing of things in the heavens relate to the priestly work in the earthly sanctuary on the Day of Atonement? Hebrews 9.23 Therefore it was necessary that the copies of the things in the heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. With the earthly sanctuary services in the background, Hebrews 9.23 points clearly to a cleansing ministry of Christ in heaven. This is a text that has baffled scholars for centuries because it clearly teaches that something in heaven has been defiled and needs to be purified. For Seventh-day Adventists, with our understanding of the two phases of Christ's heavenly work in our behalf, this cleansing is the antitype that corresponds to the yearly cleansing of the earthly sanctuary on the Day of Atonement. So to finish today, think about atonement, what it means, how it is accomplished, and who alone can make atonement for us? Why then should the news that we are living in the day of atonement be something positive and hopeful? Tuesday, December 18, The Second Coming of Christ Question. Study Acts chapter 3, verses 19 to 21. How does the blotting out of sins that is mentioned here relate to the cleansing of the sanctuary that we studied yesterday? Acts chapter 3, verses 19 to 21. 
Repent, therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send Jesus Christ, who was preached to you before, whom heaven must receive until the times of restoration of all things, which God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets, since the world began. While Peter may not have known the times or seasons in Acts chapter 1 verse 7, his reference to Joel's prophecy in Acts 2, 14 to 21 points to his appreciation of the fulfillment of prophecy in his time. In his prophetic frame of mind, it seems evident that Peter, speaking by inspiration and thus beyond his own finite understanding, is referring tersely to two great events of earth's last days. One, the mighty outpouring of God's Spirit, and two, the final blotting out of the sins of the righteous, which are tied to a third climactic event, the second advent of Christ. And that's a quote from the Seventh Adventist Bible Commentary, volume 6, page 160. The early church was certain of both the second coming of Christ and the promise of a new heaven and earth. Second Peter 3.13 tells us that. Christ's first coming provided a theological rationale for the second. As far as we are concerned, without the second coming, the first coming would have been futile. The process of dealing with the sin problem, a process that he began with his sacrifice on the cross, reaches its consummation when, after the cleansing of the sanctuary, he appears the second time for salvation. Hebrews 9.26-28 In fact, without the second coming and the resurrection it brings, what would the promise of salvation mean to us? Nothing. The second coming of Christ will mark the conclusion of the great controversy as far as the destiny of mortals is concerned. Satan, knowing that the end of controversy is in sight, seeks through deception to lead as many astray as possible. We are told that, as the second appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ draws near, satanic agencies are moved from beneath. Satan will not only appear as a human being, but he will personate Jesus Christ, and the world that has rejected the truth will receive him as the Lord of Lords and King of Kings. And that last sentence is a quote from Ellen White in an article in the Advent Review and Sabbath Herald, April 14, 1896. Against this deception, we have been warned that Christ's coming will be a literal, personal and visible event that will impact the entire world, ending it as we know it, a place of sin, suffering, misery, disappointment and death. So to finish today, look at our world. How well have we as humans done in making it a better place? While we must try to improve the lot of those less fortunate than we are, and of those who are suffering and in need, why must we always keep before us that which is the only solution? Wednesday, December 19, Awaiting the Advent Question. Read 1 Thessalonians 5, 1-11. What is the message here, and why is it so relevant to us today, living when we do? How can we take these words and apply them in the practical moments of day-to-day living? 1 Thessalonians 5, 
verses 1 to 11. But concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you. For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. For when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them, as labour pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, so that this day should overtake you as a thief. You are all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, are drunk at night. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. Therefore, comfort each other and edify one another, just as you also are doing. So much exists in these verses, but one point should stand out so clearly, and that is the hope that those Christians awaiting the return of Christ should have. Certainly, we need to be watchful and sober so that the day doesn't overtake us like a thief in the night. But we should also be full of faith and love and hope, because whether we wake or sleep, that is, whether we die before he returns or are alive when he returns, we have the promise of eternal life with him. In this day and age, when we see signs all around us, we must be careful of the way in which we interpret them of, and of how we understand their significance. Too often we can get caught up in events that cause all kinds of excitement and drama and anticipation, only to have them fade into nothing. These kinds of things, once finished, can leave members disgruntled, disappointed, and even full of doubt. We need to be vigilant, but we also need to be cautious, wise, and humble as we seek to read and discern the signs of the times. See Matthew chapter 16 and verses 1 to 4. Then the Pharisees and Sadducees came, and testing him, asked that he would show them a sign from heaven. He answered and said to them, When it is evening, you say, It will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning it will be foul weather today, for the sky is red and threatening. Hypocrites, you know how to discern the face of the sky, but you cannot discern the signs of the times. A wicked and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign shall be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. And he left them and departed. Question. What is the purpose of the signs of the times? according to John in chapter 13 and chapter 14. John 13:19. Now I tell you before it comes that when it does come to pass, you may believe that I am he. And in the next chapter, chapter 14, verse 29, and now I have told you before it comes that when it does come to pass, you may believe. The predictions about the end times were not given to justify the curiosity of believers, but to encourage them to keep watching. As we await the second advent, we need to keep our eyes open and we need to know what the Word of God teaches about last day events. This is especially important because there are so many false views within Christendom itself regarding the signs of the times. 
And so, to finish today, how do we strike the right balance in living in anticipation of the Second Advent while refraining from seeing every headline as a sign of the end? Thursday, December 20, Death and Resurrection In the New Testament, one of the events connected with the second coming of Christ is the resurrection of those who died believing in Him. In fact, as far as most believers are concerned, that is the most important part of the second coming because most of Christ's followers will be dead when He returns. Question what do the following texts teach us about the resurrection of the dead at the time of Christ's return? 1 Thessalonians 4.13-16 But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verses 13 to 25. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty, and your faith is also empty. Yes, and we have found false witnesses of God, because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up, if, in fact, the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins." Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive but each one in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterward those who are Christ at his coming. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. And Romans chapter 8 and verse 11. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. And finally, Philippians chapter 3 and verses 20 and 21. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body according to the working by which he is able to even to subdue all things to himself. The Bible teaches that in the resurrection the body is restored to life. In other words, biblical resurrection is a bodily resurrection. 
This truth becomes even more clear when we keep in mind the fact that after Christ's resurrection, his tomb was empty. The dead body no longer remained in the grave. So, in the certainty of his resurrection, we have the certainty of ours. Question. If resurrection amounts to the breaking of the power of death, how does that explain why one can attain it only by being in Christ? Second Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 to 10. And that reads, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me his prisoner, but share with me in the sufferings of the gospel according to the power of God, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began, but has now been revealed by the appearing of our Saviour Jesus Christ, who has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. The key to immortality is not greater scientific research. The power of death has already been broken through Christ's own death and resurrection. Romans 6.9 tells us that. Based on that accomplishment, he is able to bestow immortality upon those who identify with his death and resurrection through baptism. Romans 6.23 Also, the Bible makes it clear that the gift of immortality is not given to believers at death, but when Jesus comes the second time at the last trumpet, as it explains in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So to finish today, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. John 11.25 How can you learn to better grasp the hope that is contained in these words? Where would you be without them? Friday, December 21. From the book The Great Controversy, page 489, we read, The intercession of Christ in man's behalf in the sanctuary above is as essential to the plan of salvation as was his death upon the cross. By his death he began that work which, after his resurrection, he ascended to complete in heaven. We must by faith enter within the veil, whither the forerunner is for us entered. Hebrews 6.20 There the light from the cross of Calvary is reflected. There we may gain a clearer insight into the mysteries of redemption. The salvation of man is accomplished at an infinite expense to heaven. And from the book Desire of Ages, page 786 and 787, To the believer, Christ is the resurrection and the life. In our Saviour, the life that was lost through sin is restored. For he has life in himself to quicken whom he will. He is invested with the right to give immortality. The life that he laid down in humanity, he takes up again and gives to humanity. And that brings us to our three discussion questions for this week. 1. John Calvin called Christ's work of intercession the continual application of his death for our salvation. And it is said that the existence of a heavenly sanctuary was standard theology among Puritan divines. 
It's not hard to see why Christ's work of intercession should be seen as such an important teaching. After all, look at how much of the Old Testament centred around the sanctuary and the temple. Look at how much the New Testament does as well. What should this tell us about the importance of this doctrine? 2. Dwell more on Hebrews 9.23, a text that for centuries has baffled biblical scholars who can't understand how something in heaven itself could actually need cleansing. As Seventh-day Adventists, we still have a lot to learn about what this text means. How does our understanding, for instance, of Daniel 8.14 help to clarify this important concept? And three, the resurrection of Christ is utterly essential to the Christian faith. Without it, we have nothing. Read 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verses 1 to 6. Look at how Paul is seeking to persuade his readers of the evidence for Christ's resurrection. Notice especially verse 6. What is he saying here? Why is he emphasizing the fact that many of the people to whom Christ appeared are still alive. It's almost as if he's saying, don't take my word for it. Ask some of these hundreds who saw him themselves. These are not the words you would expect from someone who wasn't sure of what he was teaching. What other evidence from the Bible can help to reaffirm our certainty of Christ's resurrection? And 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verses 1 to 6. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, and in which you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he was seen by Cephas, then by the twelve. After that he was seen by over five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep. Inside Story Free Indeed Esther, and that's not her real name, slipped across the North Korean border into China. But she still wasn't free. She knew that if she was caught, she would be sent back to North Korea and imprisoned, or even killed. While in China, she met a Seventh-day Adventist woman who befriended her. The woman offered Esther a place to stay and introduced her to Jesus. One day, Esther was stopped by security police. Without a Chinese passport, Esther was arrested and sent to a North Korean prison. God, why are you allowing this to happen? she pleaded. The prison was surrounded by high walls and thick bars covered every opening. Prisoners were guarded constantly when they were allowed out of their cells. There seemed no way of escape. One cold, rainy day, Esther shivered as she waited in line to use the bathroom. The guard was called elsewhere leaving the prisoners unguarded. Suddenly, Esther felt an unseen hand push her toward the prison wall, where she found sacks of cement piled like a stairway. She climbed over the wall and ran to the nearby village. She hid in a small building, shivering from the cold. 
She heard voices and watches of search party moved from house to house looking for her. Jesus, help me, she pleaded. The guards skipped the building where she was hiding and eventually turned back toward the prison without finding her. The rain turned to snow, but Esther couldn't stay any longer. She trudged out of the village through the deepening snow. God, show me the way, she prayed. Immediately a light illuminated her path and she followed it. The path led out of North Korea and back into China. For two months Esther walked, crossing a desert and cutting her way through barbed wire fences. She found shelter with sympathetic farmers. At last she crossed out of China. She found soldiers who took her to the embassy of South Korea, where she was given asylum. Esther eventually arrived in South Korea, where she met Sister Park, an elderly Seventh-day Adventist woman who was made at her ministry to help refugees from North Korea find a new life in South Korea. Sister Park is their Dorcas, cooking for them if they are sick, providing food and clothes and shelter for them until they can care for themselves. But most important, Sister Park leads these people to Jesus. God led me to freedom, Esther says. Today, thanks to his love and his people who helped me, I'm free indeed. Our mission offerings help people such as Esther find freedom and faith in Jesus. This has been Dr. Percy Harold with a reading of the Adult Sabbath School Bible Study Guide recorded in the studios of Christian Services for the Blind and Hearing Impaired in Queensland, Australia and brought to you by the Sabbath School Department and Adventist Media Network. Remember, God is still faithful. Thank you.